0: You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for Movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about science fiction and other fantasy genres. I'm Eric Malinsky. It is New Year's Eve, at least when this podcast is going out, because it goes out on Wednesdays. Happy New Year, everybody. This is not a great week to put out original content, so I'm just going to play you an interview that I did with Joss Whedon. The Joss Whedon, back in April of 2007. We talked for half an hour, and maybe four minutes of that ended up on the air, not including clips from Buffy and narration. So I'm really glad that I can actually play most of the interview. So this was a few years after Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Angel and Firefly had all gone off the air. Iron Man had just started filming, so nobody knew that someday Joss Whedon would direct the Avengers and the sequels and be the godfather of all Marvel films. At that point, the biggest thing going on in his career was a Buffy comic book which told the story of what happened to the characters after the series finale. And also during this time, the big controversy for Buffy fans was that Joss had stopped being the showrunner in the last two seasons because he was working on these other shows. And it's funny because the writers on Buffy were really great and very well loved by the fans until Whedon stepped away. And then the show took a really dark turn, and a lot of fans accused him of abandoning his characters, even though he was still overseeing the whole thing. So you'll hear us address that issue. So I would say without further ado, but I'm going to make a little bit more ado here. Um, So I cut the beginning of the interview because we just sort of—he went in kind of a long explanation about how he tried to continue Buffy with these directed DVD movies, and then there's an animated series, which didn't get picked up, and then finally he, um, you know, made this comic book happen— And so I said to him, you know, it's funny because I thought the show ended on a perfect note. You know, all the characters had kind of completed their arcs. When did you realize they were still speaking to you?
1: You know, I don't think it ever stops speaking to me. Sometimes I wish it would shut up. But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, it's it's the story of somebody's life and and – that's why we were always able to come at every season in a fresh manner because it was a different time in somebody's life—high school, college, you know, the workforce—you uh, know, all all the little the little benchmarks. A comic book isn't as strictly adherent to you know the day to day, as as the show would be, but um, you know the characters would always continue to grow. I was never going to do the Saved by the Bell—we're in the same grade for 42 years—kind of concept. So it's about change. It's about growth. Um, I continue to change. I have yet to grow or mature in any way, but I'm still changing. And so, you know, I still feel like there's stuff to do. Plus, I love comic books, and that medium informed the sensibility of the show from the start. So to work on a purely comic book level is, in a way, a pure realization of the original vision.
0: Is there anything that you find particularly satisfying about... Um, being able to do it all in comic books now, not having to do with actors or sets or anything. I mean, you can literally just draw, you know, these actors and you've got them.
1: Well, I, I wish I could. George's Janti is drawing of them and yeah, right. he does a wonderful <laughs> job. If, right. if I could draw them myself, that would be fun too. But uh, I would never have worked with them. No, um, I, uh, I get great satisfaction uh, in, you know, mostly Giant Dawn. Um, that the fact of the character of Dawn has become a giant um, makes me inordinately happy. Stuff like that, you know, purely comic book stuff that you couldn't afford to do on TV um, is, a, is a joy. And I love writing the dialogue, but ultimately I love writing the dialogue because I love the sound of those actors' voices and you really hear them when you're writing it and hopefully when you're reading it. Um, so in a way, it's a little bittersweet. I've written some of my favorite dialogue for my, for my friends that they will never actually speak.
0: See, now that actually brings up a really interesting issue for me because, I mean, I love the show. I was never one of those people that was upset by season six. You know, I love the direction the characters were going in. But my feeling was, even though there were great writers in the show, they never quite sounded like themselves to me unless you were writing them, I hate to say. Like, I remember the last episode where... Angel and Buffy have that exchange, and he calls Spike Captain Peroxide. She compares herself to a half-baked chocolate chip cookie. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, it's them. You know, they sound like themselves again. And when I was reading this comic, I, I, I started reading the first page, and I thought, ah, oh, it's Buffy again.
1: Well, it's – it's um, well, f- first of all, thank you. Um, the half-baked cookie speech, by the way, was Marty Noxon's, not oh. the actual speech, oh. but the concept behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, – When you do a show, you you try to create a particular patois and a style that is exactly your own, and then you're basically trying to get people to both mimic and expand it. Um, Everybody's going to bring something a little bit different to the party. Um, But for me, that's what makes it a party and not just a guy in his room with a bowl of punch by himself. Um, I like hearing other people's concepts and a lot of the way I started to write was influenced by what I'd heard from Greenwald or Petrie or any number of, of really great writers on that show. So, um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of you know, lines that you absolutely adore and probably attributed to me that were theirs hmm. uh, and vice versa. Um, all lines of,
0: that I hated that I was like Josh would never right. have written that in fact you did
1: <laughs> exactly I, people will come to me and say how could you have let so and so do this and I'm like uh, sweetheart that was moi and ultimately you know uh, even if you didn't write it you take responsibility for it um, when you're executive producing when you're creating anything uh, every single product um, has your name on it and is your responsibility so if there's a single issue of the comic that doesn't feel right to the audience then I'm not doing my job
0: now, I want to ask you too about your saying how the characters kind of don't shut up in a way. i'm really I'm very curious after the show was was over with how how did you feel they were speaking to? You? Were there sort of moments where you're having flashes of, you know what Buffy's in Europe now, and I just know it?
1: Well, you know, we had we had said she was in Europe on Angel, but that was more about Angel and Spike than it was really about Buffy. But I always imagined, you know, having been in that uh, small and rather evil town for a long time, she would get out and see the world. That's another part of of growing up. Not one we were going to be mapping necessarily. Um, I think when the show first uh, ended, I, what I was really thinking about Buffy was. Um, oh, that was really hard. <laughs> it took eight years. So you know I, I didn't you know it took I, I had a, a recovery period mm-hmm. of a few years you know before I realized, oh that's what that noise in my head is. It's those guys chattering.
0: Did you uh, consult with the actors at all and say uh, not even just say hey, you know or, or even just let them know by the way, this is where your character is going?
1: I really didn't, and uh, you know i I see some of the actors uh, pretty regularly. Um, uh, others I see occasionally, but the fact of the matter is, I just never really hired a single huge comic book geek. And so I'd get all excited and say, guess what? Your character's doing this and this. And, and, and they really just, they, you know, they're like, that. I've had 14 roles since then. What? Learn to let go. Um, and, of course, if you show them a drawing of themselves, they're not going to like it. They're not going to go, wow, I look awesome. They're going to go, my arm's too long, my elbow's too wide, you know, my one eye. I mean, you know, they just, you know, uh, nobody has that kind of perspective, myself included. Uh, yeah. But there are no drawings of me until we do the, the big numfar book. But um, the, big uh, what? the big Numphire book, uh, Numphire, was my great starring role. Clearly, you, you missed it. I don't I was, remember that. Was when was that? Once a thespian. I danced in the background of One Shot uh, in an episode of Angel in demon makeup. Uh, I, uh, I, pre- I,
0: wow, I totally missed that.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I set, you know, I set the bar for television <laughs> acting. I hear Gan- Gandolfini, I uh, used to watch the Numfire dance a lot really? just to prep for the Sopranos <laughs> because, you know, that's really how it's done. Uh, I yeah. think I'm being knighted, yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. I want a few Olivier's for that.
0: So, um, so now, as far as the 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 Buffy's storyline that she's going on, I and mean, for me, it always seemed like there was all. I mean, there, well, not obviously. There there is this tension between her kind of wanting to be a regular girl and having the sense of responsibility of of being the Slayer. Where 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 did where are you taking that now for this new sort of season eight?
1: Well, regular girl is not on Buffy's resume anymore. Um, Obviously, she still has regular feelings and desires and, and, you know, frustrations. Um, She's, you know, the the concept behind the entire piece is a regular person is put into a horror movie, um, you know, and goes... Why are you all, you know, why is everybody talking like this? Why are you so arch? Why are you so full of yourselves? Why do these vampires keep wearing these puffy shirts and thinking they're sexy? (laughs) Oh, wait, that one really is. Okay, now I feel weird and conflicted. Um, That was sort of the beauty of the thing. But the fact of the matter is now she's really a superhero. I mean, ultimately... Um, She's accepted that that's what she is. She's accepted to an extent, even though it's hard for her, as you read in the first issue, that she doesn't have a normal life. Um, She will still be reaching for some kind of normality and most importantly, of course, the the love and trust of of her close-knit friends. But um, the fact is the whole world is changing and that's largely because of her. So, um, you know, the the arc for Buffy – at the very beginning was finding out that, uh, you know, there were demons in the world and, and that she had to fight them. And then over the course of the years, seeing how that affected her. And, and you know, now that she's created the, the new bunch of Slayers, for anybody who doesn't know, she made all the potential Slayers Slayers at the end of the, at the, end of the show. And, and so now there's this basically new sort of burgeoning race of Slayers. And, and not unlike the mutants in the X-Men universe, uh, people aren't necessarily loving them. Um, they love and the idea that there are all these women who have a lot of power, um, and so she's going to be, you know, working on a great, a much more epic scale because it's a comic, and also directly confronting what the what the show, you know, um, basically danced around or or incorporated um, for the entire seven years, which is, you know, basically rampant misogyny. How so? Um, women with power uh tend to make people very upset. Those people tend to make me very upset.
0: That's that's interesting. Um but there were a lot of female villains though throughout the
1: series. Oh, absolutely. But um the idea that, you know, all across the world everyday normal women who may or you know, have been in positions of, you know, either just being normal or being truly oppressed, uh have a greater power than anyone around them. Um you know, it's it's uh It's a very tricky issue for some people. And, you know, the book is never going to be, you know, uh, and neither was the show, you know, one-sided and just say, well, you know, all women must be more powerful than men and men are stupid and women are awesome. I mean, women in power... um, Two words Margaret Thatcher, so clearly um, you know everybody's fallible but um uh but at the same time, there is a horrible imbalance in the in our gender uh structures uh in every culture, and that's something that is sort of gonna come bite buffy back now that she's empowered so many women hm how do you feel about fan fiction
0: um you know do you ever do you ever read that stuff? Do the writers ever read that kind of stuff
1: um I don't generally read fan fiction. Um, but I've definitely glanced at it uh, because uh, I had never heard of it when the show started. I mean, you know, uh, Jane Espenson had. She knew all about, uh, you know, she can tell you a lot about some really unseemly Starsky and Hutch fan fiction. But um, <laughs> uh, that was, you know, published. I mean, that would be printed. And, I don't think and I've ever around. thought
0: of that in my mind until you just said oh, that. Oh,
1: well, believe me. Kirk and Spock ain't nothing for chemistry when it comes to scarcity and Hutch. Um, but, um, you know, I I am absolutely 100% completely for it. If I was not writing professionally, if I was growing up right now, uh, that's what I'd be doing. Um You know, uh, everybody incorporates characters that they love into their own fantasy life and to be able to create narratives around that and then share those and compare them and have a whole community based on the fact that you're sitting alone in your room writing a fantasy involving your favorite TV characters. Um, What was in my day uh, a little pathetic is now actually really not only... Um, fun, but really useful because it's, you know, it's like a giant writing class that includes anybody in the world who wants to join it. Did you
0: hear about, there's a website where uh, somebody has kept a diary of every person and object where Spike's leather jacket has a diary and the stuffed bunny in, in Buffy's room had a diary?
1: Um, No, I did not know that. <laughs> uh, it's great, um, actually. Spike's My leather, leather jacket has a diary. <laughs> um, and I actually snuck in and read it and it's just all about how sweaty I am. Weird. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. Spike's leather jacket sounds like Spike. It's very funny.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that is. um, Well, you know, um, if 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 uh, if people can find a way in. Um, I, then i don't care what it is
0: um, No, it's interesting cuz you know buffy you know ne- a lot of people felt buffy deserved emmy nominations had never gone um do you ever have uh, Did you ever think about sort of the, the sort of respectability
1: of genre issues i mean
0: have, have you sort of let go of being bothered in any way by that
1: i let go of that um before it started hmm. uh, every now and then you know you'll stop and go hey, every award i've ever won has a rocket ship or a planet <laughs> on it <laughs> But those, by the way, are way cool looking awards. So um, and uh, um, and they're the awards, you know, I mean, when Serenity won the Hugo and the Nebula, that was that was like the biggest honor of my life, because, you know, that's the stuff I read as a kid. I love genre. Um, Genre has much more respect now than it did. Uh, When I was young, somebody, you know, did the math and realized that all of the biggest money making films of time were, you know, were fantasy films. And the situation is a lot better now uh, for genre than uh, um, than it was. Uh, But um, ultimately, you know, I didn't create a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer expecting to get an Emmy, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and 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 I, you know, I dread. What I think is the bane of science fiction, which is taking yourself too seriously. Um, And uh, you know, Buffy had a particularly silly and sophomoric title on purpose because I wanted to tell people, look, we're going to have fun. Um, Doesn't mean it's going to not going to be dark sometimes. Going to be some weird stuff going on, but we're going to have a good time. Uh, And if you're not here to do that, then you know. Probably best watch something else um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't need for the genre to become more respectable and more like, you know, procedurals with superheroes. I, I, I need to, I need fantasy. I need science fiction. I need other worlds. I need the future. I need spaceships. I need um, monsters. I need these things in my fictions because um, they're what I love. And uh, I don't care if they ever give me an award for it. Um, that's the stuff I'm going to write.
0: I mean, that's always actually what I always loved about the show when I first started watching it. I thought it was amazing was this sort of there's this tongue-in-cheek, almost self-deprecating um, sense to it throughout. It's almost like the writers are winking at you saying, look, we know this is kind of ridiculous. And you're thinking, oh, they know this. is and, and for some reason, that just allows you to suspend your disbelief so much more. You're like all of a sudden you're having so much more fun because there's this like little tongue-in-cheek thing going through the whole
1: thing. Well, you know, I'm not a fan of camp, which is, you know— completely distanced, which is a thing that is, you know, making fun of itself on on a very basic level. But I am a fan of the, you know, the reality of a person in a ridiculous situation. Um, And from the very start, whenever something was not only ridiculous, but say repetitive, if we did something that we'd done before, uh, David Greenwald and I always had the motto, plant a flag on it. Have somebody say, didn't this just happen? Or, you know, or is that Is that a 12-foot bird man? Because I just want to check. Because, you know, no matter how long they've been in the game, um, that kind of reality check uh, is what keeps them, you know, the audience proxy. So, yeah, that makes it much more fun. I mean, you know, the classic example being the musical, um, which people say, oh, you know, bursting into song, that's so unrealistic. And then I have a bunch of people bursting into song and going, that was so unrealistic. Mm -hmm. What's going on? You know, it allowed people to enjoy the musical on a level that uh, was perfectly comfortable. Um, all right, I want to let you go because I know
0: you sound really—you sound kind of hungry. I think I'm, am I hearing your stomach?
1: Uh, you might be hearing my stomach, uh, just because uh, my stomach never shuts up. I, sometimes I used to stand near the actors, you know, and and then they'd ask me to go over to the monitor because they couldn't act over my stomach.
0: All right. Well, let me ask. You. I want to ask one more question, though. Do you ever do I mean, as sort of the, the guy who ultimately the characters are speaking towards, um, do they ever do, do you ever sort of let your fantasy go and, and and have them do something that you think, well, that was really silly. You know, that will never happen. You know, just sort of giving yourself permission. Um, not even not even like that kind of weird, creepy fan fiction, but just something that's just kind of silly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of the weird and the creepy. And, and we love the silly when we when we were talking about doing an animated show. You know, that was, our, that, that was the release valve for a while. Um, but the show itself, you know, we, 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 we were not afraid to go to the silly any more than we were afraid to go to the, the, the dark or the twisted. It just had to have some grounding in reality. We had to get there. Um, but we, you know, we did some of the most ridiculous stuff on the show. And, and the comic book is certainly not going to break that tradition.
0: But you never there's never anything that you think, all right, you know, that's just for my head. You know, I'm never going to actually. Oh,
1: yes. Oh, my God. There are things the writers that we pitched that, you know, we would laugh about for years uh, that I will never repeat in public. Um, and there were things that we were always like, um, I mean, the classic example was something we had planned to do for the, uh, for the animated series was Robot Shark Monster. <laughs> I don't know how we got stuck on Robot Shark Monster, but we were obsessed with the beauty of Robot Shark Monster and the alienated teen who had created a Robot Shark Monster and nobody being able to figure out what the metaphor was. <laughs> but why a Robot Shark Monster? Because nobody pays attention to me and, and it's a metaphor for me. A robot shark monster. Yes, but why a robot shark monster? We would go on about robot shark monster forever. And when we, you know, started writing scripts for the ill-fated animated show, that was one of the first things we thought about. Now we can actually have a robot shark monster. Um, You know, and that was a different kind of sensibility than the comic book because the, the animated show was going back to year one. And telling stories, you know, of a slightly more innocent uh, uh, Buffy, and uh, and things were a little a little sweeter. Um, but yeah, that's that sort of thing um, is uh, is part of writing any show. You know, the, the jokes you can never do, the things that are too silly, the things that are slightly out of character, or too expensive, or just gut-bustingly funny, or incredibly offensive, or a mixture of all of the above.
0: Was there ever anything that you really fought for that the writers nixed and just said, no, you can't, no, we can't do, we
1: can't have? You know, it's interesting, uh, but that never happened. Um, uh, Greenwald had a saying he was fond of, which was, well, Joss wants it this way. Gee, which way do you think it'll go? (laughs) Um, You know, I I was running the show. Um, That's not to say that I couldn't be talked out of a bad idea. I just never had one. Oh, how I wish that were true. Oh, uh no. Um everyone was just afraid of me. Yeah. Mostly yeah. of my my sweaty leather jacket. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, which has a blog now too. Yeah. Strangely enough. All right. Well, great. Um I think we've covered everything and uh this okay. can all be sliced and diced and edited just for the, you know, choice parts. So
1: Yes, so when the interview comes out, it'll be you'll hear me going. Hitler was good, <laughs> and I'll be like, "Wait a minute, I I didn't. How did you?" It will all be about your leather jacket mm-hmm. and your stomach, basically. Well, that. honestly, what's more interesting? <laughs> my stomach actually answered most of the questions. <laughs> I didn't agree with a lot of my stomach's opinions, but what can you do?
0: All right, it's well, free country. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So, listening back eight years later, there's a couple of really interesting things here. First of all, when he says, "I don't like," um, superhero sci-fi fantasy stuff that takes itself too seriously. Because when you think about it, I mean, his sensibility, his tongue in cheek sensibility, the witty banter, those are that is now the sensibility of Marvel films. You know, and he's saying this a year before Chris Nolan has made Batman Begins, but he kind of is describing what the DC sensibility, the very serious, somber DC sensibility was going to become. And this is a debate that DC Marvel fans have been having, and God knows we'll continue to have until 2020, when this entire <laughs> cycle of DC versus Marvel films finally, finally plays out. Uh, I also thought it was interesting to hear him talk about how mad he gets about rampant misogyny, because in the last year, 2014, uh, he's been really vocal about defending women in the gaming community who have been tormented by male chauvinist trolls. So, go Joss. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. You can like Imaginary Worlds on Facebook. I tweet at Emolinski. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. And thank you guys so much for listening, supporting the show in 2014, and um, got a lot of good stuff lined up, so can't wait for you to hear it. murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.
2: It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust.